I want to begin tonight by reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, and what I feel like is uh, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Ephesians. Uh, this is a, a prayer that Paul offers up here uh, for the church. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. And he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Our text here reveals a number of interesting things that we could focus upon. Uh, one thing worth noting is the prayer life of the Apostle Paul, and in particular, uh, his focus on intercessory prayer. That is, that he's interested in, in praying for others. And that's something that we see throughout many of his letters. We're also told to whom he prayed, the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, he says. But most interesting here is what he prayed for. And there are a number of things that we could look at here. I think what he has to say about the spirit within us is particularly interesting. But I want us to focus on one item in this prayer this evening. Paul says he wants them to be able to comprehend the love of God. And in particular, he singles out four aspects of that love, four dimensions of it in verse number 18, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. I want us to talk for a few minutes about those four dimensions of God's love this evening. First of all, let's talk about the breadth of God's love. I think about what is easily the most famous passage in all of the Bible. Everyone knows this. Even people who don't know the Bible know this. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And what I want us to particularly focus on in terms of the breadth of God's love is to whom that was directed. God so loved the world, the whole world, the entire world. God's love does not discriminate. And that is so unlike our love. I don't mean this as any sort of political statement or anything, so don't take this the wrong way or read too much into it. But human beings, as a rule, have a tendency to love and to like people who are like them in one way or another. That's just the way that it is. And sometimes that can take really ugly forms. We know that. But it doesn't necessarily have to. 
we have a tendency to gravitate people who, who look like us or who like the things that we like. If you have hobbies that you like, you, I like sports, you gravitate towards sports fans. You're able to talk sports. If you're into quilting, you gravitate towards people who like quilting. Or whatever it may be, we can go on and on with this. We have a tendency to like and to love people who more or less are already like us. God's love is not like that. It doesn't discriminate in any way. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. Our love is often so narrow, but God's love is broad as the entire world. It extends to all people and to all kinds of people. You can see this really clearly if you just go chapter by chapter through the book of Acts and see all of the different types of people that God's love extends to. And those of you in our Acts class on Wednesday night, as we move through the book, this is one of the things that we're going to be pointing out. We have God's love extending to all races, not just the Jews who historically had regarded themselves as God's chosen people. But remember at the very beginning of the book, Jesus says to the apostles, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, so expanding geographically. So it extends to Jews. It extends to Samaritans, who the Jews regarded as a, a mongrel race. It extends to Greeks, who were regarded as unclean pagans. It extends even to Romans, who were hated by the Jews because they were the oppressors, they were their conquerors. It extends to all social classes. You can see that in Acts. Rich and the poor, we have the highest of the high in society, uh, the wealthy, the powerful. Uh, a Roman governor, for example, is converted in the book of Acts. And we, yet we have the lowest of the low. A fisherman, or a great example, uh, Simon the Tanner that Peter stays with. Uh, tanner was an unclean occupation. It was on the outskirts of town. Uh, it was not an uh, occupation for any sort of decent person. And yet here's someone that Peter goes and stays with because God's love extends to all. Men and women. You know that women were regarded as basically second-class citizens in first-century society. And yet we have a number of women who play a prominent role in the book of Acts. I can think about Lydia and her household, for example, who were converted in Philippi. On and on and on we could go with this. All levels of society, all uh, levels of wealth, men and women, God's love extends to all. It's not just for a chosen few. It's not just for a small circle of people. It is for everyone, as broad as the world. Secondly, Paul prays here that they might know the length of God's love. I think here of what John writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is the essence of God's nature. And God, as we know, is eternal. He's without beginning, without end. So if God is love and God is eternal, that means that God's love is endless. It's not bound by time. It's without beginning or without end. 
And we see a clear indication of that in Scripture too. It's God's love that motivated Him to create the world in the first place because it's His nature, His love, that motivates that creative act. It wants to share. It wants to create. It wants to lavish its love on others. It's His love then that formulated a plan for the redemption of humanity. When His creation went astray, it was out of His love for the human race that God made a way of escape so that not all of humanity would be lost. It's God's love that continues to work in the present, trying to accomplish His plan to bring about His purpose. It's God's love that's at work in the future, Jesus says he's gone to prepare a place for his children. So God's love is at work in the past, it's at work in the present, it's at work in the future. We see that throughout all of Scripture. And we see the length of God's love in the fact that it endures. It's resilient. It's unending. You see, justice says that by all rights, we deserve death. We're not worthy of God's love. They haven't earned it. But because of His love, God instead bestows upon us His mercy and His grace. He spares us. And in fact, He even allows His blessings to flow to those who are rebellious to Him, doesn't He? He sends His reign on the just and on the unjust, for example, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. How different is that from our love. We're so fickle. When we say we love someone, what we often mean is we love them just as long as they treat us the way we want to be treated. Just as long as they're nice to us in return. But if they fall out of favor with us, well, then we don't, we don't love them anymore. God isn't like that. He continues to love even when we're in rebellion to Him. And we're called in that same chapter, Matthew 5, to be perfect, in particular in context, to be perfect in love, just as he's perfect in love. God's love extends to everyone. Third, Paul prays here that they may know the height of God's love. We see the height of God's love in the lofty purposes it creates. To return to John 3.16, God so loved us. And why did God so love the world? Or how did he show that? That whoever believes in Jesus might not perish but have everlasting life. He demonstrated his love so that people might be saved. So that they might live. God has loved us so that we might go and then reflect his love back to the world. I think of a passage a little bit earlier in Ephesians, back in chapter 2, and we know most of this, where Paul says, by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He says that our salvation is a, a gift of God. But in particular, in verse number 10, he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God loves us and recreates us so that we should demonstrate good works. We can reflect God to the world. We're to be salt. We're to be light. We're to be a preserving influence in the world. 
We're to show the world that we're God's people. We are to be that shining city on the hill so that everyone's drawn to God's people and attracted to it. I think of the way uh, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. So that others may see our good deeds and might glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the day of judgment. People will see the way we live. They'll see the love of God in our lives. And they'll be drawn to become Christians too. Our love is so often selfish in nature. We talked a little bit about that in our sermon this morning, how our culture is increasingly narcissistic, self-absorbed, self-indulgent. And so often our love, if you can call it that, is based on what we want, what we can get out of somebody else. And it's just based on using up other people. But God's love creates us to be a blessing for others so that we can go out and show the world that God loves us and that his love is alive in us. So we see its height in its holy nature and its purpose. Finally, Paul prays here that they might know the depth of God's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, we usually think of that in terms of Extent That is, God loved the world this much. That's not quite right. What the text is really saying there is God loved the world and he demonstrated it in this way. That is, God so loved the world, colon, he gave his only begotten son. And yet, when we think that he did that, the idea of the way he demonstrated it and the extent of it really aren't that far off. Think of another song we sing, not the one we're singing tonight, but one that we sing sometimes, Oh, the depth and the riches of God's saving grace flowing down from the cross for me. That's the idea we see in John chapter 3 and 16. We see the depth of God's love in the way that he demonstrated it, in sending Christ into the world. What was wrong with the world? It was lost. It was perishing. It had no hope. And so that it might not perish, God sent Jesus into the world so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but they might be saved. They might have eternal life. So God's love is so deep, you talk about its depth. It reaches down and raises up even the vilest, worst sinner. And look at what God's love does. Think about this. It, it gives. True love is best understood in terms of its service, its sacrifice, its suffering, what it's willing to do for others. Well, God made the supreme sacrifice in sending Jesus into this world. We see it in terms of the fact that it condescends. Jesus not only came into this world, but he took on human form. He became incarnate. The infinite God took on the finitude of humanity. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says there that he poured himself out into the form of a servant. He took on human form. And not only that, he condescended even humbling himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. 
He was more concerned with serving others and with saving others than serving himself. I think of, really, if you want to sum up Jesus' life and his ministry and God's love in one verse, Mark chapter 10 and verse number 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see the depth of God's love in the fact that it suffers. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes there, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't just die for saints. He died for sinners. In fact, you go on a bit later in this chapter, and Paul says we were his enemies. Jesus died for his enemies. That's the depth of God's love. We see its depth, too, in the fact that it forgives. Reminds me of what we looked at this morning, again from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, where Paul encourages the church there, to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. In Christ, God forgives fully and freely and completely. He forgives both his enemies, the alien sinner, and his children who go astray for apostate. That's something that we forget about sometimes, you know. We feel like, well, I know God forgave me. I, I I was a sinner. I was baptized. He forgave me of my sins, but I, I don't know now. I've, I've gone astray, and I don't know if he'll forgive me again. And yet, to go back to Romans chapter 5, that's precisely the point that Paul's making there. If while we were his enemies, he would die for us, how much more now that we're his children will we receive forgiveness from him? God truly loves us. Anna Warner and her sister Susan lived in a, a lovely townhouse in New York City. And their father was a successful lawyer, Henry Whitting Warner. But as has happened several times in American history, the economy goes up and down. In 1837, there was a panic. And it basically ruined the family. They had to sell off most of what they had. And they bought a, a stately but relatively ranshackle, it was run down, its best days were behind it, a farmhouse out uh, in the Hudson River on Constitution Island, just across from West Point. It was a Revolutionary War era mansion. Well, Anna and Susan saw the need because of their family's financial straits to contribute to the income. And they had some talent in writing, so they started to do that. They began writing stories and poems and published them. Uh, the girls actually launched parallel literary careers, and they were modestly successful. 106 publications between them over their lives. 18 of them were co-authored together. For more than 50 years from that house on Constitution Island, just across from West Point, they would teach Bible classes every Sunday morning, and they would arrange for the cadets from the school to row over. And in fact, when they died, when Anna died in 18, well, she was 95 years old, I should say 1915, 
she was buried with full military honors in the cemetery there at West Point. She and her sister are the only two civilians to be buried in that cemetery. Anna Warner's most lasting legacy comes from a novel she wrote called Say and Seal. It was a bestseller, second only to Uncle Tom's Cabin during its lifetime there in the 19th century. And in this story, there's a character, a little boy named Johnny Fox. He's dying. And his Sunday school teacher comes to him to comfort him in his arms. And he rocks him. And he makes up a little song. And the words are familiar to you. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. The hymn writer, publisher, William Bradbury, read that book. He read the words to that song that Anna had written. And he set it to music. And before very long, it became the best-known children's hymn on earth, which, of course, it still is today. That's what I want us to sing tonight. made that crack about not needing the lyrics, I didn't realize that one of the verses was missing from this songbook. It's a good thing that I really didn't need the lyrics to that. Despite 
the success that they had, the Warner sisters actually never really fully recovered from that financial loss they suffered back in the 1830s. And years later, a friend who'd visited Anna wrote this. One day when sitting with Miss Anna in the old living room, she took from one of the cases a shell so delicate that it looked like lace work. And holding it in her hand with eyes dimmed with tears, she said, there was a time when I was very perplexed. Bills were unpaid. Necessities must be had. And someone sent me this exquisite thing. As I held it, I realized that if God could make this beautiful home for a little creature, he would take care of me. God is our Father. His love for us is perfect and it's pure. It's as broad as the world, as long as eternity, as deep as the depths of sin and misery, and as high as heaven. May we return the love that He's demonstrated to us by loving Him and obeying Him and submitting to His will in all things. Now this morning in our sermon, we talked about the imperfections of our human families. But in God, we have a perfect Father. Is your relationship with Him broken? Do you need to be reconciled to Him this evening? If you need to make changes tonight, take the opportunity and do so now while we stand and while we sing.